I brought a prop. Haven't had a prop in a while. This would be the pedigree for my children. Anybody know what a pedigree is? You've probably heard about them for dogs or horses. You have one too. If you have someone in your family, like my mother, who's really into genealogy. Um, so this is the pedigree for my children. Uh, and I brought it in because I, I wanted to share a couple family members with you. Um, so each color is a different generation, right? So like this is, this is my older child, and then uh, Leighton and I are on here in orange, and then our parents, etc. Um, so first, uh, I would like to point out to you um, my father's father, Percy Irving. He was known as P.I., which if you were named Percy Irving, you would probably also go by P.I. Um, his father was also named Percy Irving, so that's charming. Um, we have, um, let's see, where did she go? Right here, Emma Carpenter, right here. Um, she married Benjamin Franklin Fink, and that's important for you to know because um, she is the originator of the recipe uh, that we know as great-grandmother Fink's ginger cookies, the Connor uh, Van Brett family favorite Christmas cookie. It is made with lard. That's what makes it delicious. Um, we have, uh, let's see, oh yes, we have um, my great-great-grandfather, where is he? He's down here. Uh, William C. Thompson, he brought the first Brahma bull to America. You're welcome, <laughs> I guess. Um, and let's see, um, there's, a, there's a, a playwright in here somewhere. There's my great-grandmother, Leela, who um, when her car would um, skid in the ice, she would say, wee! Um, I never knew her, I wish I had. Uh, <laughs> pedigree is just a fancy word for a really sort of expansive family tree. Obviously, you can see a ton of people on there. This is my mother and father's side of the family. This is the Connor side of the family down here. We're still working on that part. Um, but um, my mom is super into this. And um, I don't know, it's just been part of my life for a long time, knowing all these stories. Now, years ago, I went to um, Christmas Eve services with uh, my new husband's family. That would be Leighton, uh, with his family. And the pastor at that Christmas Eve service preached about Jesus' pedigree which is that genealogy that's at the beginning of Matthew. I, we didn't read that. You're welcome. Uh, we mostly skip over that because who wants to read all of those, those names? It's like super boring. Turns out it's fascinating. This church is a charming Protestant church in eastern Kentucky with the pews set up in arcs around uh, a central dais. There's a full immersion baptismal swimming pool behind the altar. And the preacher spoke about how he was new to the congregation and was still trying to figure out how everyone was related. In Kentucky, we call that kin. Who you kin to? He spoke about the expectations we have of folks that we're kin to, how we view some folks in the family based on who else they're kin to, and what it means to be family together. And he said that he always thought that Jesus, you know, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, all of those things would be kin to all kinds of faithful, righteous folks, that his perfection would be reflected in his own family tree. About that, um, Jesus' family is full of murderers and adulterers and just difficult people. One of the things that I find fascinating about Jesus' kin in that long, boring, begat passage is the four women who are listed. Now, you may know that I've written a book about some of these women. Um, they're, they're amazing. Of the 40 generations named in that list, there are only four women listed in this genealogy. Tamar the trickster, Rahab the prostitute, Bathsheba the wife of Uriah, and Ruth the filthy foreigner. Tamar wanted justice 
from her father-in-law Judah. Yes, that Judah. So she dressed up as a prostitute and seduced and blackmailed him. And when he realized what had happened, he said, she is more righteous than I. What? Rahab hid the Hebrew spies who were doing recon so that they could cross over into the promised land and kill all of the Canaanites. She sold out her own people for these guys she'd just met. Wild. Bathsheba was taken, possibly raped by King David, and her husband murdered so the king could have her for his own. Ruth was from Moab, one of those countries at the time that good Israelites would have spat on. Their reputation for filth was so strong. Side note, made up, but whatever. What an odd collection. What imperfect people for Joseph and Jesus to call kin. These are big names, big stories, tying the baby Jesus not just to King David, but all the way back to Abraham. These are like the heavy hitter stories in this genealogy. Maybe, maybe even Jesus had black sheep in his family. Maybe even Jesus had just regular folks who had to fight and desire and bleed and lie in his family. I feel like over the last 2,000 years, maybe we've put Joseph and Mary up on a pedestal. Righteous Joseph, the world's greatest dad. Mother Mary, meek and mild, they're like the er parents. Honestly, even with that weird genealogy, wouldn't God pick like the best of the best to be the parents and to raise up God's only son, God's self in human form? The story says Joseph was a righteous man, so he must have been more than just some guy, right? I have struggled with this story for some years. I've always, since I had an awareness of this story, felt really uncomfortable with Joseph's decision to send Mary away quietly. It's true that he was well within his legal rights to publicly embarrass her and have her stoned to death for getting pregnant by someone else. Let's pause for a moment and just notice that it's the woman who received his punishment like Tamar might have back in the day, not the man. But he takes the merciful route and only chooses to send her back home. But y'all, that would have been such a shameful thing. And it wouldn't have stayed quiet. She was legally bound to him, though they were not yet married. And if she had turned up at home with no husband and great with child, as the King James says, you know that would have gone extremely poorly for her, right? Righteous? I brought this up at staff meeting this week. I was already grumpy about other stuff, so... And Pastor Alex, blessed him, blessed him, pushed back a little bit. He said, why wouldn't Joseph have thought the worst? They had an agreement, whether or not there was affection there, and it sure looks like she got frisky with someone else. He's got questions. Fair enough. And then she tells him about the angel and the blessed art thou among women and the let it be, me, be with me, and he's got some follow-up questions. He isn't so much super righteous or super faithful or a model citizen as he is a man of his time. I'm sure he had gifts and skills and did good work raising our Lord and Savior, and also, he was just some guy. He's out here living his life, and suddenly he's got a visitor, an angel in his dream, confirming every wild thing that his fiancée has said. 
And then a little less suddenly, he's got another visitor, one who tips his whole world upside down, his son Jesus. Jesus, who is God incarnate, who is clearly a bit of a handful growing up, who isn't Joseph's biological son, but who he receives as the gift that he is. Joseph doesn't have to be anyone special to do this. It happens all the time. But doing this is so special. It's miraculous when we humans choose love and acceptance when it would be easier and less embarrassing to choose separation or culturally appropriate disgust. Jesus, the baby and the man, is an apocalypse, a revealing of what's underneath, an end and a beginning all in one. The angel, both to Joseph and to Mary, and Jesus, their bouncing baby boy, offered them a new path that just dramatically shifted them away from the one they thought they were walking. These visitors, as well as the Magi later and so many others, they come to regular people, imperfect people, and they felt it. The soul felt its worth. You know this Christmas song, right? Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. We are pining even now, perhaps more now, 2,000 years later, longing, desiring for God to show up, to be God with us. And when God does, we can feel it. The presence of God is the presence of fullness, of purpose, of worth. It can certainly come with conflict, but the presence of God is love and belonging, even in the midst of that. These visitors, the angel Jesus, they come to us regular folks in all kinds of guises. And there's no need for us to be perfect or righteous or perfectly righteous. That's not the point. Hospital for sinners, remember? We are waiting and pining for someone who challenges us, changes us, comes unexpectedly, and leaves us with gratitude. I read an article on NPR this week about a middle schooler, Jennifer, who had been bullied for a few years, her her looks, her style, her awkwardness. There were these three particular girls who targeted her and made her life miserable every day of seventh grade. They cornered and insulted her, and all she could think to do in that moment was to repeat back to them what they'd hurled at her. You're stupid. No, you're stupid. You're ugly. No, you're ugly. In the following year, tragically, the ringleader of this group of girls died in a car accident. And Jennifer, of course, hadn't wanted such a thing for her, but also wondered if it would mean a better eighth grade year. But a new girl had moved in and taken over the other spot with the bullies. And so Jennifer was back where she started. But one day she stayed in the locker room to change and ran into the new bully. And the new girl began picking on her as usual and Jennifer began to cry. She couldn't contain the pain anymore. The other girl was surprised and uncomfortable and said, you're so mean to my girls, why are you crying? And Jennifer told her, weeping, the whole story that her rudeness was only a reflection of the others. There was silence, and the new girl said, I didn't know. 
I'll make sure they leave you alone. And they did. Jennifer had been waiting for help, for someone to see her, to change her life. Her angel, her visitor, surprisingly, was her bully. And from my perspective, God was present with them in that locker room, with them and in them both. Who knows, maybe Jennifer, with her tears, was this kind of visitor to her bully. I have been struggling this semester. Not with my calling to campus ministry that has been solidified time and time again by these beautiful students that we serve. Now, I've been struggling with how to help some of our students who are carrying much heavier burdens than others. I've talked about this some before. We have some students who bring with them some serious trauma, family, cultural, and it makes their lives very difficult. They approach their pain in different ways, some more effective than others, but there have been a number of moments, whole weeks even, when I have felt entirely helpless. It is not my job to fix it for them. I know that. It's so hard to sit with them when they suffer. I realized I needed to learn more about trauma and its effects, so I reached out to a trauma specialist, and (laughs) friends, I have never felt more seen and affirmed than I did in that one hour with her this week. She appeared on my Zoom screen like Gabriel announcing the birth of the Messiah. (laughs) Do I exaggerate? No. This woman immediately made me feel at home, and in 10 minutes of introducing myself in the Edge House, she not only understood what we do, she saw how powerful and transformative it is for the students, and how much I long for it to be so. And my soul felt its worth. Y'all, I did not expect this. I thought we would talk about the situation of the students and she would offer me some tips and tricks, maybe a little bullet point checklist of all the things that I could do to fix it. No, this woman challenged me to see how good this place is. She changed my perspective on my ministry and she left me full of gratitude. I had no idea. It reminds me of when I held my firstborn for the first time. As Leighton said at the time, the world is not good enough for this person. I looked and looked, drinking in their tiny face, and I thought, I have no idea, I had no idea I could love someone this much. Nobody told me. I had no idea. I imagine Joseph felt something like this when he met his adopted son, Jesus. Imagine that he felt the other thing Leighton and I did, inadequate. But we don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to know what we're doing. We don't have to show up with all of our stuff together with the best family tree behind us, the most accomplished. We need to show up with open hands and open hearts, just ready. Joseph thought he knew what was up. He did what any dude in his era would have done. But when both Mary and the angel offered him a new story, he took it. 
He said yes, much as Mary did in Luke's version. Pastor Alex said last week, we aren't just people of the tomb, we are people of the cross. And I would say we aren't just people of the cross. We are people of the birthing room. Hands and hearts open and ready to receive Jesus, even though we don't really know what we're doing. And we are the people of the locker room, the people of the kitchen, the people of the Zoom meeting, people of the long embrace. All we need to know is that God is really with us. Not how we aspire to be, not how we think we're supposed to be, but God with us here, now, today. We're just some guy. Sometimes we need someone to come in from the outside to shake things up. An angel, if you like, Jesus the Christ. Or a stranger at your door, or a friend who shows up right when you need them. Sometimes we need someone to come in from the outside to break us open and show us something completely different. Something we couldn't have imagined. An apocalypse. Jesus is an apocalypse, and so too these visitors, these guests in our lives are revealing an end as well as a beginning, and an open hand. As God has visited and welcomed us, so we visit and welcome others. Amen.